Snap Studios. Sometimes, in some places, we feel a presence simply by standing where they stood, walking where they walked, even seeing what they saw. It could be an underpass, a road, a bedroom. The place seems to have absorbed an echo. And even if we can't articulate it, we know this. We know this. But what if whatever it is refuses to stay confined to any single spot and attaches instead to someone, someone still walking around? From Snap Judgment's underground lair, you're listening to Spooked. Stay tuned. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Snap Judgment presents Spooked comes from Odoo. Tired of relying on disconnected software to manage your business? Then you need Odoo. Odoo is an all-in-one management platform with a suite of user-friendly applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of your company in one easy-to-use software so you can get more done in less time. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash spooked. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash spooked. Odoo, because amazing employees deserve amazing software. From KQED and PRX, you've crossed over to Spooked. As a kid, living in rural Michigan, I spent most of my summers in the woods. Running, climbing trees, tracking deer, that electric insect buzz of the deep forest becomes the soundtrack of my childhood. I imagine that I'm the first person leaping these streams, carving these trees, until one day I see three weathered pieces of rock 
tombstones. Solemn, remembering centuries, reminding me I am but the latest under this sky. And before, I've never minded wandering alone. Neither sun nor rain nor thunder could chase me back inside the house, but I feel something here. Something restless. Something hungry. And somehow, even as a little kid, I know that some things just aren't for the touching. Some things are for the running away. And I run and I run. And 30 years later, I'm absolutely certain that whatever waited in our woods was best left right where it was. Today, from Snap Judgment's underground lair, please know that my name is Glenn Washington, and I hope that you know when to run, because spook starts now. already died and can't cross over but what if we told you that living people can sometimes haunt a place when Randy's grandparents moved into their new house they soon realized they had a flesh and blood haunting a ghost who is still very much alive Randy's grandparents lived at the edge of a tiny town in rural Kentucky. They had a house on a hill with a big yard. There were no street lights. At night, you could barely make anything out in the darkness. A man started coming around the property and just sort of lurking. A thin, tall man, you know, sort of gaunt, not trying to break in, not saying anything to them, just standing at the edge of the yard and staring. This was Mr. Smith. He'd been married to Mrs. Smith, and they had lived in that little house on the hill. They didn't have kids. She was his whole life. And then one day, Mrs. Smith was out in the front yard when... She was struck and killed by a car out, like, right in front of the home. He pretty much was not able to cope And um, he got into some financial ruin and was no longer able to keep the house. Mr. Smith lost his home, but he wouldn't go away. When Randy's grandparents rented the house, he started coming by every day. He stood in the yard. He didn't move. He didn't talk. He just stared blankly at his former home. It was scary to have some strange man lurking around your property. 
This is a real problem. One day, Randy's grandma decided she couldn't take it anymore. And she stormed out the back door, and he was standing at the corner of the yard, and she began to scream at him to leave. My grandmother was vicious and um, insulting him and calling him crazy, but he just stood there staring. And the fact that he stood there staring and didn't do anything was scarier, in a way, than if he had reacted. She was afraid he would break in and try to hurt or kill them. They had taken his home away. What if he does something to my daughter? It felt too dangerous, too out of control. They packed up all their things in a hurry and moved out. Mr. Smith was standing on the lawn, watching them leave. They stayed closer to town, but they thought about that house, about Mr. Smith. And then they heard that Mr. Smith was gone. He'd finally passed away. And that house on the hill was up for rent again. Randy was five at the time. She spent a lot of time with her grandparents, and they all moved into the house. We were sitting around the TV, and it was night. And I remember it used to get really dark because this property was set alone by itself. There wasn't a lot around it. And we just heard like a thump upstairs, and it sounded like, sounded like something fell. When it's pitch black and cold outside and you feel trapped, like you can't turn your mind off of what is this? What is the scary thing that I'm hearing? And it really sounded like someone was coming downstairs from this attic. And I looked at my memo and I said, what was that? Well, let's go up there and see. And I distinctly remember my grandmother very um, firmly saying no you can't go up there, it's dangerous. And I remember that because it was so unusual for her to say no ever. Like, that word did not come out of her mouth. Up in the attic were boxes and boxes of hairbrushes, dresses, old tubes of lipstick, untouched for decades, all belonging to Mrs. Smith. Even though Mr. Smith had died and his house was sold off, no one had ever been able to bring themselves to clear out Mrs. Smith's things. My grandmother knew from day one that Mrs. Smith's stuff was in the attic, which is why she was adamant that we not go up there. It sounded very much like somebody was up there rooting around the belongings. This is Mr. Smith. He was visiting with his wife's things in the attic. One night, the family is coming home. Randy's grandpa pulls into the driveway. And as he drives up, I can see his shoulders tense up. And he kind of abruptly stops the car. And he says, don't get out. Y'all wait here. And I can see my grandmother's freaked out. My mom's freaked out. And she says, Lester, Lester, let's, let's go. Let's go. And I, suddenly I look and I see that the basement door is ajar. He's like, just, I'll be right back. Don't, yeah, I'll be right back. Don't worry. And he gets out of the car. And even though he told us to stay in the car, we all got out of the car. Um, and we're just kind of inching toward the house. 
And at some point, my grandmother can't take it anymore. She says, Lester, Lester, what is it? And he comes upstairs, and he is as white as a sheet, and he is shaking. And I have never seen him vulnerable like that. I've never seen that. And uh, he says, don't don't go down there. Just don't go down. And so my grandmother sighs and pushes him aside, and I follow right behind her. Before my grandmother gets to the bottom of the stairs, she stops. I just felt like something evil was in the room, just evil. There are these footprints coming down the stairs next to us, and they go across the cement floor to the other end of the basement, and they actually walk up the cement wall, and they stop at the furnace. They are dark red, um, and it looks like blood when blood has dried. Every chill in the world went down my spine. It seems like the anger emanated from the basement, almost like this is the foundation of my home, and I want you pushed out of my space uh, from the bottom up. You know, his presence was so angry. Maybe he thought when he died, he would finally be reunited with her. The feeling we got was that he was there and she wasn't. And he did not understand why he wasn't with his wife. He was furious. Finally, he'd left this world and she was still nowhere to be found. Mr. Smith? He might not have found his wife in the afterlife, but he'd run Randy's family off the property for the second time. No one would talk about it while Mema and Peppa were alive. But after they died, when Randy was grown, one night she and her aunt and her baby cousin were driving by the little house on the hill, and so they pulled into the driveway to snoop around. We were trying to peek in the house, and it's really dark, and we can't see anything, and... Um, my little cousin, who was three or four at the time, um, she stands at the basement window and she goes, who's that bad man? And we say, wait, what? She goes, there's the bad man down there. He's got blood on him. So my aunt picks her up and walks away from the basement. And we actually don't even really say anything. We just kind of look at each other. And then we're getting ready to go. And we're standing there, we're looking at the porch swing, and it just starts swinging. And my aunt's like, do you see that? Do you see that? And then it just starts getting bigger and bigger, and it looks like somebody is swinging in the porch swing. And my aunt says, Mr. Smith, is that you? And it just stops. It just stops in mid-track. And... Then it very slowly starts to swing again. <laughs> and, and it gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And then my aunt, who just is way braver than I will ever be, goes, Mr. Smith, that's you, isn't it? And again, it stops. The feeling that came over me when I saw that swing stop, it was like a rock in my stomach. It made me kind of sick. We left, and I have never driven past that house 
again, um, and I never wanted to. Thank you, Randy, spook listener, for sharing your story with the spook. And if you have a spook story that walks a supernatural path, do what Randy did. Drop us a line and scare the bejesus out of us. We want to hear it. Go to spookpodcast.org. Now when spook returns, we're going to do the unthinkable. We're walking into an insane asylum that some people never walked out of. Stay tuned. Spoot. Here in the States, we've got these crumbling old asylums. You know the ones. They were built back in the day out of red brick. They looked like big grand houses with lots of windows. They stood far away from town back in the woods. They're isolated, gated off, because they want to keep everyone from getting out. And now a lot of them are closed. But maybe you know some kids who snuck into them at night. Maybe they've even come back wide-eyed, saying they heard voices, saying they saw something, someone moving around one of those dark, empty hallways. So, we're going to take you to one of America's most famous asylums, Overbrook, in New Jersey. It's closed now, but back in the 70s, Ron used to work there as an attendant. And Ron, he was pretty popular with the patients. Because I would pick up coffee and cigarettes, which I would basically hand out to the patients and that, and the newspaper. Yes, after a while, you become, the, you know, become friends with them. There was one patient in particular, this guy Mark, and Ron felt like they had a connection. I would look out for him. I would get him, like, uh, if he wanted something, I'd say, Mark, you want anything? You know, because I'm going to get stuff here. You want a cheeseburger or anything? And I would buy him a hamburger or something like that, you know. Just basic things, cigarettes, if he needed a soda or if he needed something that he didn't have the money for. You know, we had a lot of stuff in common. We came from the same neighborhood, the same ward in Newark and stuff, and, uh, you know, we went to the same movies as a kid, the same area, and everybody else we knew, so, you know. Yes, he did trust me a lot, yeah. And when I would see him in the morning, or at the times, he would go, Ron, how's it going? What are you doing today? How many patients are you going? When are you coming back over here again? Uh, you know, when's the last time you've been down to down to the church? When's the last time you've been here? You know, how was it last night? What were you doing last night? Did you watch TV? Did you do this? Did I, and that's it. <laughs> so that's what you get. Mark suffered from schizophrenia and had been a patient at Overbrook for over 20 years. 
Mark was pretty ill. Mark was there for quite a long time at Overbrook. He was, no, he was, he was, uh, they sometimes call him lifers. He was there, he'd be there for the rest of his life. And I guess on the outside, too, his uh, parents, whatever, had to put him in a long time ago so they couldn't control him. Mark was prone to outbursts, but Ron could calm him down. They had this ritual. Some mornings when Ron first got in, Mark would meet him. They'd have a cigarette on a porch outside the ward that looked over a field. They talked about Newark, about church, and about Ron's day. And then Mark would go back to his room, and Ron would punch in and start work. It was spring. It was like May. It was really nice. And uh, I remember getting up that morning, heading out to work. And I always stop off at uh, the convenience store to pick up the coffee and some cigarettes and newspaper. And like any other day, I headed to work. I pulled in the entranceway to the ward where I work at, got out of my car, walked onto the ward. And then there's a patient standing there with his back towards me. And then as I got closer to him, he turned around and it was Mark. And he just said to me, he goes, oh, hi, Ron. He goes, hey, do you have a cigarette? I said, sure, I got one. I said, Swiss, wait a minute. Let me put my bag inside my room here and we'll go on the porch. I took my keys out, opened up the door and we're walking out. I said, come on, let's go on to the porch. And when we stood there, I gave him a cigarette. I lit it for him and I had one. I said to Mark, on today's paper, they had in Branchbrook Park, New Jersey, the cherry blossoms are blooming. You know, he goes, oh, I remember that when I was a kid growing up out there. I said, yeah, that's where I learned to go fishing. He was relaxed. He was calm. He wasn't his normal jumpy little self. You know, like, you know, what's going on and everything. But, you know, I wasn't about to ask him what the change was, you know. (laughs) So as we're chatting away there, you know, I looked down at my watch because I always like to be on time punching in. And it was like about eight of around there. And I said to him, well, Mark, listen, I have to go in now and stuff. Put out the cigarette. Come on, come inside. And so as I went to die out my cigarette and pulled the keys out of my pocket, I put my head up and I was right by the staircase. And that's when I, that's when I seen it. And you didn't have any time to move or do anything. It just, that was it. It was there. You put my head up, it was there. There's a figure. It was dark and thick, mist, and uh, I couldn't see through it. Well, I'm only like about 5'11", but it towered over me. Came right upon me with his arms reached out. And before I could even say anything or do anything, it just went right through me. And I felt cold. Cold, because it was a warm morning, and it was very cold. I felt the severe pain in my chest. And I fell down to my knees, pulled down to the railing there, and I couldn't breathe. I felt my left arm go numb, felt pain in my jaw, and I thought right away, I'm having a heart attack. I'm dying of a heart attack. Like they say many times, people say, oh, well, if you're dying, how your life goes past you. Well, I found out that's not true. There is no time to look back on things. It's just that 
you're scared. You're so scared that this is it. And you're trying your damnedest to breathe and whatever, and you're going down and you can't stop it. You have no control what's happening to you. You've lost all that. Next thing I know, as fast as it came into me, as it went out, I suddenly could feel my breath come back, slowly. And I started to breathe again. As my breath came back, you know, I was totally shaken up. I just, you're like in a haze. You can't figure out what happened. You know what happened, but you just can't piece it all together. I started to lift myself up on the railing. And as I got up, I stood there with my both hands on the railing in there, and I was shaking. And I looked over to Mark, and he was gone. I thought he might have went to get help. I looked down, and the cigarette he was smoking was still on the ground there. So I just reached down and just died out my cigarette and then reached over to his and put my foot on it. And then I took my keys out, walked inside the ward, headed right to the area there to punch in, and I just sat down in the chair, just taking a deep breath. And just then the nurse came over and I was sitting there and she asked me, go, Ron, are you okay? Another attendant came running up to her and said to her, we have a patient down up in the dorm upstairs. And she said, what is it? And he said, a code blue, which means they're down. It's emergency. So she just ran and called the doctor and then said to me, Ron, can you come and help us? We're shorthanded. And when I knocked on the door, I opened it up, and the doctor was there then. He handed me a clipboard. He says, I can need your signature, if you wouldn't mind, just sign right here. I need a witness. So I looked down, and it said, time of demise or deceased at 6.30 a.m. And I just signed underneath there. And he goes, you need to see the body. The patient was lying down on the floor, covered with a sheet. The doctor didn't give him any warning. He just flung back that sheet. His jaw was crooked. His tongue was in between his teeth. You could see the blood. And his hands were both of them were clutched right by his chest. And they were frozen in that position. And when I looked down, I noticed it was Mark lying there. I just was with him. That was it. I just hit, I just fell down onto the bed and put my head down. I felt like I was going to pass out, you know. And the doctor then put his hand on my shoulder, told me to put my head down and start breathing. That's when I tried to explain to him that I just had a cigarette with him. We had a cigarette on the porch. It was at 6.45. And at the clipboard, it said right there, Time of death, 6.30. When he pieced it all together, Mark at that time was already passed. How could it be possible? You can't be two places at one time. You can't be down there having a cigarette with me and yet be up in a dorm passing away at the same time. And when I left there, 
I went and I called the priest I knew down in Newark and I explained to him what happened and he said that that what you experienced was the we call in the Catholic religion which I'm Catholic he goes the angel of death it just has the one main job to do and that's what it does nothing else and they're sent down to collect and they collect the bodies and set them off and they're gone he said you just happened to be there at the right time it was coming to pick up Mark and he said that you were talking with Mark's spirit That's why Mark seemed different to you. He wasn't the same Mark as before. He was now once whole again. And he said, Mark was going through a transformation from being a patient that was suffering from schizophrenia to going back to being a whole spirit. He said, you experienced Mark's death. I asked him, why would it be me? He says, that's you, Ron. It's you. It's how you are. How you are. Years later, after Ron retired from Overbrook, he started to have some health problems. He was hospitalized and sent to intensive care. I was there for three days. Three days. I think if I slept for two hours, that was a lot. Kind of had my eye open. And constantly looking at the door and around looking for the angel of death. I didn't see it. I was scared as all hell, but I didn't see it. Thank you, Ron, for sharing your story of the spook. Now, folks, Ron shared some photos of Overbrook with us. Make sure to hit up the Spook Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to check out Ron's snaps. Please know there are more full episodes of Spooked Download or stream the show right now where you got this one. Or go to spookpodcast.org. As we count down to All Hallowed Eve, be afraid. The Spook Ghostbuster crew includes Mark Ristich, Anna Sussman, Jody Colley, Jasmine Aguilera. Both of our stories today are produced by Eliza Smith and scored by Leon Morimoto. Our original Spook theme was by Pat Masidi Miller. And if you like real stories, from real people with no ghost around subscribe to the amazing snap judgment podcast and despite our continual admonition news reports worldwide continue to chronicle people making the same mistake when confronted with the supernatural forces friends please remember the darkness is not your friend 
That's why I beg you. I plead with you to never, ever, never, never, ever, never, never, ever, never, never turn out the lights. This story was summoned in the dark of night by KQED and PRX. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with the licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P, dot com.